Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to try to get through uh, verses 1 through 15 today. And so Paul writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation of gold, with gold or silver or precious stones, wood or hay or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. We, we have studied 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and uh, we hopefully have seen that Paul is pointing them to the wisdom that is the cross. The wisdom that is found in the cross. Paul is making much of wisdom and how it relates to the cross, where they're finding their wisdom, what they're considering to be true wisdom. And, and that's the main point even here. Wisdom. Wisdom and its relationship to the cross. Paul, Paul's not changing directions. He's not bringing up something new. He, what he is saying, though, is each chapter he's going to deal with something that specifically they were dealing with, and he's going to relate it back to the cross. He's going to relate it back to the cross. When we look at, when we look at um, chapter, chapter 5, we're going to look at church discipline. Paul relates it back to the cross. In chapter 6, when he says, Or do you not know that you have been bought with a price, that you are not your own, therefore glorify God in your bodies? He's relating it to the cross. Where were you purchased? The cross. In 1 Corinthians 7, when he talks about marriage, he's saying, Take your marriage back to the cross. Take your vows back to the cross. Look at your marriage in relation to the cross. He's going to do it in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He's going to talk about it in, in chapter 11 when he talks about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Chapter 12 through 14 when he talks about spiritual gifts. It all goes back to the cross. And we have to be careful that, that we don't forget that because more is at stake in our lives and how we live our lives and how we walk as Christians. More is at stake than just you individually. More is at stake than just just me and how I preach this word. More is at stake in, in this church and how we take the gospel to our neighborhoods and our communities and our schools. More is at stake than just us. And that's what Paul is trying to get forth here. The gospel itself is at stake. The integrity, the, the testimony of the body of Christ is at stake. We have to take everything back to the gospel and say, look, 
It may be lawful, just like Paul is going to deal with in chapter 6. The Corinthians had a saying, you'll see it multiple times in chapter 6 and chapter 10. All things are lawful. And he says, hey, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. When you take that law, when you take that freedom back to the cross, it may not be profitable. You may be able to do it, but it reflects negatively on the cross. You know what Paul would say? Cut it out. In chapter 8, Paul's going to say, if meat, if meat or anything causes my brother to stumble, he says, I'll never eat meat again. I'll never eat it again. Why? Because the cross. We have to take everything back to the gospel and say, how, how is what I'm doing? How is how I'm living? How is what I'm spending my time on, my energies on, all that? How does it affect the cross? Does it affect the cross? Because when we, when, we, when we as believers, what Paul is saying here is when we as believers live as non-believers, we rob the gospel of its power. We're robbing each other. Not only are you robbing yourself, you're robbing other Christians of the ability to share the gospel. You're robbing it of its power. Is it powerful? Yes, always. But the world is not going to see it as powerful. And when we who are spirit-filled believers live as if we're not as mere humans, as Paul says, the, the integrity, the testimony of the gospel is at stake. When, when we who have been unified, when we were scattered, we've all been made one. We've said it before, Galatians 3.28, there's neither slave nor free nor Greek nor Jew nor barbarian, nobody. It's, we're all united at the cross, but when we're divided... It sends a message to the world. And, and the problem is this. It's not with the gospel they were given. It's they did not grow in that gospel that they were given. It's not in the, it, the problem is not in the spirit that they were given. It's they did not yield to that spirit that they were given. Everything we need, First, Second Peter 1, 3 says, everything that we need, seeing that all divine power has given everything we need for growth and godliness. We're just not appropriating what we've been given, as Paul says. And he's going to deal with their carnality. What Paul deals with is Christians. These are Christians who are living carnally. In chapters 1 and 2, he dealt with, with non-Christians and Christians in, in those two categories. Today, he's going to divide Christians into two categories. Spirit-filled Christians... And not spirit-filled Christians, meaning controlled. Ephesians 5.18, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. That word there is controlled. You have the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says at the moment of belief, you were sealed with the Spirit. But you're not yielding yourself to that Spirit. You're not yielding yourself to be controlled by that Spirit. What is controlling you is your flesh. And as a believer, I have this flesh in me, and I have the Spirit in me. Whichever one I feed... That's going to be the one that dominates the other. There's a constant battle in my life and in your life for the flesh, between the flesh and the spirit. And whichever one you feed is going to be the one that, the one that dominates the other. That's what you're going to get. And, and Paul, Paul, when he deals with carnality, remember that. He's dealing with a lack, a believer who is not allowing themselves to be yielded to the power that is the word of God. The spirit of God that has been put in you, you're not yielding yourself to that spirit. That's, and he says that's carnal. And, and it's one thing to not be spiritual, but Paul says it's another to be spirit-filled and live as if you weren't. 
You know, he'll say in chapter 5, he'll say, hey, I don't want you to associate with, the, with those people. And he says, not of the world, not, not those sinners that are of the world. He says, I'm going to tell you not even to eat with a so-called brother who lives in unrepentant sin. He says, don't even eat with them. And he says, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about non-Christians because you'd have to leave the world to get away from them. I'm talking about your brothers and your sisters in Christ who profess to be believers. And don't live like it. Paul has strong words. Paul says in chapter 5, he says, I, I'm going to give that guy over to Satan to destroy his flesh so that his soul will be saved. Strong words. Strong words from Paul. And, and Paul is saying, but behave the way you are, believer. Live up to the title to which you've been given, believer. Live up to the spirit that lives inside of you. Your title and your calling, are, are, you don't just set those aside. You don't live as if you didn't have those. And the, what he's going to say is carnality has consequences. And that's what I want to focus on today. The consequences. And also next week as we finish this chapter, the consequences of carnality. There are consequences. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is that carnality stunts our growth. Carnality will stunt our growth as believers. And, and Paul deals with that. In chapters 1 and 2, again, he contrasted believers and non-believers. Here he is contrasting spirit-controlled believers and those believers who are not living their lives according to God's Word. As a pattern. Again, they're believers, but their pattern of their life doesn't back up what the Word of God says. And, and he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, but you weren't able to receive it. And you're still not able to receive it. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not mere men? And again, the, the crate, the, what really strikes me here is... I'm sure not every single person in that church was carnal, but Paul addresses them as one body. As one body. And that's what really stood out to me here is, is Paul addresses them as brethren, and I, brethren, could not speak to you. He doesn't call out individual offenders. He deals with the whole church. And the truth is this, the whole church was defiled by the action of some of the church. The whole church. It wasn't just, hey, you Joe and you Mary and you Steve, quit acting like that. He addresses the whole church. The, the unchristian behavior of the many was transferred to the whole. It affected the whole. We've all been there where you plan a great trip to Disney World or something like that, and you've got you know, your, your multiple kids with you, and, and when one of them doesn't act right, what does it do to everybody? It affects the whole trip, don't it? It's not like you just isolate that one kid out there that's not acting right and you say, hey, why don't you walk about 15 feet away from us and we're going to have our good time over here. No, the, the one affects the whole. The whole trip has changed. And until you have kids, you don't have a whole lot of patience for that parent that can't get their kid under beha to behave right. But then when you have kids, you have a whole lot of grace. Beforehand, you know, Karen and I, no kids like, man, what are those parents back there doing? Get your kid under control. Now we're the ones that people are saying, what are those people back there doing? Get your kids under control. But the actions of the individual parts impacts the whole. 
The actions of every single one of us individually as a part of the body of Christ impacts the whole. And Paul says, hey, because of your behavior, I can't address you as spiritual, but I have to address you as fleshly. I can't talk to you as an adult. I've got to talk to you as a child. And that word would have been a very biting word for the Corinthians. They prided themselves on being spiritual. And, and Paul says, no, 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 you think you're spiritual. You're not spiritual at all by the way you're living. And, and it would have been a, it would have gotten their attention very, very quickly. The, the word there, men of flesh, emphasized their humanness. It emphasized the physical parts of life. Their attitude was this, I'm going to do what I'm going to do no matter what. They had a lot of slogans. All throughout this book, you see slogans. I thought about that. We live in a world with a lot of slogans. And those slogans, like it or not, we take them in and they affect us. I guarantee, I, I, remember, I googled this week, top slogans. Just, just slogans out there. Have it your way. Just do it. All these things, they're focused on self. And, and the Corinthian church had allowed the slogans and the way of life of their culture to make their way into the church. And when we get to chapter 6 and 10, Paul is quoting them. He says, the Corinthians say all things are lawful. That's the way you operate. But I say not all things are profitable. A Christian doesn't operate on all things are lawful. A Christian operates on the profitable, not on the lawful. And, and you are fleshly, Paul says, when you do what your body tells you to do. You're fleshly when you do what your feelings tell you to do. You're fleshly when you do what the culture tells you to do, rather than on what the Word of God tells you to do. He says you're fleshly. When, when you focus on self over the gospel, he says you're fleshly. When your thoughts overrule what the gospel says, he says you're fleshly. Interesting, Paul says, I could not come to you as spiritual men, even now I couldn't. It, you know, it, this isn't some 20 years that they've been a Christian. At most, we're talking about five years. At most, we're talking about people who had been saved for no more than five years. And look what Paul expected of them. Just five years. I mean, he, he is saying, you're still not ready. After five years, I still have to talk to you as an infant. I dare say if I said, raise your hand in here today... Most of us have been saved for more than five years. And how are you living? If Paul came in here today, how, to, how would he have to talk to you? Would he have to talk to you as a baby? Or could he address you as a man or a woman, grown up in the Lord? Five years. He says, you couldn't receive solid food then. Paul would understand they were first Christians. That's fine. A baby should use Gerber and milk and have their food mesh, mashed up. But, a, but an adult, if your son is five years old and he's still drinking a bottle, you wouldn't be okay with that. If he couldn't chew his own food, if he couldn't feed himself, you wouldn't be okay with that. And Paul says, you're fleshly. You're fleshly. It's interesting to me what Paul puts forth to prove that there's fleshly. He says jealousy and strife exist among you. What's, two, what's one thing you can guarantee? If you put two children 
in a room with toys, what's one thing you can guarantee is going to happen within five minutes of being in that room? They're going to fight. They're going to fight. They're going to want the same toy. There could be 150 toys in that room and only two of them, if one touches a toy, the other one wants it. It's proof of their immaturity. Jealousy and strife. And that's what Paul is saying. Jealousy and strife. Another sign of immaturity, a child will forego the greater for the lesser. When we come to Christmas here in a couple months, I remember our children would open a gift and they would set aside the gift and start playing with the box. The box. But there's a, the gift is right there. They're playing with the box. I mean, we have, we have two... Uh, my dad built, we had, their, our kids were around some boxes. They have things in their room right now. It's just a cardboard box. They've got tons of toys. They wanted to sleep in the cardboard box that he had cut out as a car. They got a perfect, the lesser for the greater. They'll, they will throw it, kids will abandon something very, very valuable for that which is not valuable because of immaturity. It's not their fault. They're just immature. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You're abandoning the true wisdom of the, of the cross for the false wisdom of the world. You're abandoning the source of, of, of life and joy for that which does not provide what it promises. He says you're setting aside true spiritual food for junk food. You're, you're setting aside the word of God, that which provides true wisdom and it makes you truly spiritual for that which doesn't make you spiritual at all. You, you've laid aside the greatest thing in the world, which is the gospel, for the things of the world which equate no more than the garbage. You, you know of Jesus Christ. You've received His forgiveness, but then you're living like the world. He says that's crazy. And, and of all the things, he says strife and jealousy exist among you. That's how he knew that they were immature. And what's the problem with strife and jealousy? Well, strife and jealousy, at its core, the problem is this. It fails to recognize the reality that at the foot of the cross, all of us are equal. When you sit at the foot of the cross, when you stand at the foot of the cross, all of us are equal. Whether you come in here, no matter how you come in here as a believer, you're equal. We're equal, believers. We've said last week, the cross humbles us. Nobody boasts at the foot of the cross. Nobody. The cross humbles us. It's because it's all of grace. We can't do anything to earn it. We did nothing to merit it. We did nothing to deserve it. We received it by grace. And Paul says, you who have received everything you have by grace, why are you fighting? Why are you arguing? Why are you divided? Why are you, why are you going after each other? You're, you're all who you are by the grace of God. And again, when, when you think of when you and I think of flesh, I bet jealousy and strife would be way down the list. If we wanted proofs of, of, of immaturity, proofs of, of lack of spirit-filled living, proofs of the flesh, we think of activities. Playing cards. Oh, they're fleshly. They play cards. We, we tend to relate it to what we drink, what we eat, what we do. Paul says, let me tell you how I know. He, he didn't list any of that. He says, jealousy and strife. Jealousy and strife. You divided? Hey, church, you divided? It's because you're carnal. It's because you're fleshly. 
Not, not, the, way that, not the way that we would have put things forward. And, and what Paul is showing here is that being fleshly is simply a church that buys into the world's philosophies. That's what being fleshly is. It is thinking and acting like the world. When a, when a church's members begin to think and act like the world, he says you're carnal, you're fleshly. When a church holds on to the attitudes of the world instead of the word of God, you're fleshly. And that's the continuity that we see with chapters 1, 2, and 3. Again, this is one long letter. It would be best to read in one, one sitting. This is one letter. When you get a letter from somebody, you don't read just the first four sentences and set it down and then come back and read the next four sentences. This is one letter, and that's the continuity. Paul is saying, and it's the same for us, every single one of us comes in here today with attitudes and philosophies of the world. We live in the world. How do, do we bring those in here? Or do we check those at the door and submit ourselves solely to the Word of God? That's the question Paul puts forth. Do we read this Word of God and do we siphon it through a filter that is filled with the world's philosophies and the world's truths and the world's ways of living and then whatever trickles down and jives with the world and our flesh then we accept? Or do we say, you know what, I accept it because the Word of God says it? No matter how it contradicts with the world. And Paul is saying... We'll, you're fleshly because you're not allowing the Spirit to be in charge. And that's the question for all of us. Who is in charge of your life? Who's in charge of your life? You can look at the Word of God and Paul continually, we've looked at it before, he continually, almost in all of his letters, opens them up. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That word is doulos. That word means slave. Literally, slave. Paul knew unequivocally, I'm not in charge of my life. I'm not the owner of my life. And he says, you are acting, verse 3 and 4, you're still fleshly. You're acting like mere men. You're, you're, you're not living up to that which you've been called. Look, look at me at 1 Peter 2.5. Look at 1 Peter 2.5. You also, as living stones, listen to this, you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is building a spiritual house in us, a holy priesthood. And, and he says, don't act like you're not. Don't act like a mere human here. Don't choose to partake in activities that mere humans would partake in. Don't, don't have a marriage that a mere human would have. Don't seek to raise kids the way that mere humans would. Don't seek to have a work ethic that a mere human would have. Don't seek to be a neighbor that a mere human would be. Go beyond that because the gospel is at stake. The testimony of, of Christians is at stake. And, and, and Paul, it's not that we won't stumble. Hear me. It's not that Paul is... is confronting them because every now and then they stumble. The word walk here means to pattern one's life. This was a habitual pattern of their life. And when we look at our lives, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, are, are there patterns of my life that I have patterned after the world more than the Word? You look at Galatians 5.16 and he says, walk by the Spirit, literally live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
That word, walk, that word uh, live literally mean, it means to pattern your life. Pattern your life. And Paul is saying if we walk in the patterns and the ways and the philosophies of this world as Christians, it will stunt our growth as a believer. It will stunt our growth as a believer. And that's what we see here. I, I looked up this week the effects of malnutrition on humans, the effects of malnutrition. Listen to this. Every single one of these has a spiritual implication that you can see in the Word of God. Uh, someone who is malnourished, high risk of disease. Think about it. When you know very little of the Word of God, when you feed very little of the Word of God, you are at high risk for Satan to, inf to, to attack you. And you bring that disease in here. And guess what? Fleshiness is contagious. It's contagious. Poor wound healing. When somebody wounds you in the church, if, you're, if, you're, if you don't have the word of God richly dwelling within you, that wound lasts for It won't heal. Instead of forgiving them, you hold it against them. Instead of forgiving them, you go tell others about it. Instead of forgiving them, you seek your own revenge against them. Poor wound healing. Some of you in here have been, have been victims of that, have been hurt by that. Churches divide over that. Organ failure. It decreases the development of your mind. Hey, you don't feed on this Word of God, your mind goes to garbage. It goes to things that's world. Poor development of your bones. There are psychological effects. Fatigue. What does the Bible say over and over again? Endure. Endure. Press on. Run the races and win the prize. Endurance. The benefit of the Word of God is endurance. The benefit of the Word of God is, is, is discipline and diligence and hanging in there because it's tough. And, and you think about that with the effects to the body. Now think about how do you think malnutrition affects us as believers? How do you think it affects this church? Huge implications. Huge implications. And so I ask as, a, as a, just a, an application. I, I want you to just so, search your own heart. What, are, what might be some worldly philosophies you come in here today hanging on to? That you come in here filtering the Word of God through? What, what area of your life or areas might you be living according to the flesh and not yielded to the Spirit? Is it your TV watching? Is it your finances? Is it your pastimes? Is it some hobbies? Some habits? What is it that, that you just refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? In what ways maybe have you patterned your life more after the world? Patterned your life more after the world than after the Word? And this is the thing that hit me. Bottom line, based on how long you come in here today that you've been a believer, how long you've been a believer, how mature are you? If your children were the same age physically as you are spiritually and they acted like you do, would you be okay with that? Or would you be going down to the doctor to make sure to check on it because something's bad wrong? Some of us would be, some of us would be checked into the doctor for, for underdevelopment. That's what Paul's saying. Based on how long, this is five years. Just five years. Paul says, I'm concerned about you. You're acting like mere men. And what Paul is saying is carnality stunts our growth. It stunts our growth. 
Living according to the ways of this world, the philosophies of this world, stunts our growth. But secondly, carnality costs us rewards and blessings. And that's what Paul is saying in 5 through 15. Carnality costs us rewards and blessings. We must take carnality serious. It will bring about division and it will destroy the best of churches. It will destroy the best of families. It will destroy the best of businesses. Whatever it is, carnality and strife will destroy it. Look, look with me at 1 Peter 2.2. 2. It says, Like newborn babies long for the pure, spirit, pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Well, guess what a baby? A baby has to have milk. A baby will stop at nothing until it gets milk. You can put whatever you want else in front of it. He, that baby will not be satisfied until it has milk. But what's interesting about 2.2 is you have to go back to verse 1 to really see the point. And in verse 1, he says, laying aside all evil. Laying aside all evil. What's he saying? We first must commit to laying aside all evil before we will crave the milk of the word. If we entertain the philosophies and the ways of this world, we won't hunger and thirst for the word of God. Why? Because we'll be full of junk food. We filled ourselves on junk food. And the cost will be high. Just like physically, the cost of doing that is very high. The cost spiritually is very high. And, no matter, and he goes on to remind them, again, the, the humbling of the cross. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants from whom you believed. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters is one, but then goes verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. No matter who you are, what Paul is saying is, listen, no matter who you are, you're a servant. No matter what you come in here thinking you are, no matter what the world tells you are, no matter what you are out there, when you come in here, you're a common servant. That word servant literally is the word they would use for a busboy or a table waiter. Busboy or table waiter. And what Paul is saying is, look, we exist for the purpose of glorifying God, period. That is the reason we exist, to glorify God. You're, you're nothing more than a busboy or a table waiter. You're not the master. You're not the owner. That's what he said. They, were, they, were, they love to worship personalities. We love to worship personalities. Oh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I follow Cephas. Paul says, who are they? Who am I? I'm a servant. I'm just a servant. No, no matter how, who you are, no matter what you have, no matter how accomplished you are, you're nothing more than a servant in God's family. You're a servant. We're all fellow servants. I mean, imagine a bunch of servants sitting around arguing over who's the greatest servant. That makes no sense. It didn't make sense when, when, when Jesus' disciples were doing it. It doesn't make sense when we're doing it. We're servants. And, and in the midst of great diversity, Satan wants our fleshliness to kick up and divide us. And aim is our unity. The, the, unity, the unity of this church is the aim. Why we forgive, why we lay down our personal agendas, why we, we work and battle through the hurts is because we want to maintain unity. We want to maintain unity. And at the end of the day, our mission is to glorify God and we are, we're nothing. And that's not good for self-esteem, but it's good for Bible truth. I am nothing. I'm nothing. God is everything. And if there's anything good being produced in me, give the glory to God. 
It's God who's working through me. I'm just his fellow worker. And what Paul is saying is, look, to your flesh, this is not, the world says, be served. Guess what the Bible says? Serve. The world says, make much of yourself. Guess what the Bible says? Think nothing of yourself. Matthew 20, 28, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Then look at Philippians 2. I'm going to read it. It's a, a long passage. He says, Have this attitude which was also in Christ. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not, do not merely look after your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ, that although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't honor man, we honor God. That's what he's saying. Don't focus on the servant, focus on the master. It, it takes, he uses the farmer and he uses a builder here. And what Paul is saying is if you understood the culture you know, today we have such sophistication and, and everything is automated and there's so much help. You know, one man, one or two people can farm and maintain a huge area of land because of the automation and the sophistication of the technology. In Paul's day, it took a team. If Paul is talking to a group of people that would have understood, they do everything they can do as a farmer, but most of what, most everything that was required for them to have a good crop was out of their control. They had very, very little control of almost everything that impacted their crops. And Paul says, hey, unless the Lord causes it to grow, it's not going to grow. We're fellow workers. We, want to see, we get the opportunity to see God work through us. We're fellow workers. We don't cause the growth. We simply lay the foundation. We choose how we will build and how we will plant. That's your choice as a believer. What are you going to build upon? How are you going to plant? And, and the point Paul is making, all of these are only as good as the individual parts. We, Bradley and Sarah planted some, some little seeds and some little things and and, and they have broke the surface. And I mean, it was like uh, the greatest reward in all the world. Every day they would water those things, and it was just black dirt, black dirt, black. Finally, you see these little green things pop the surface. But it was a good lesson for them. You, you do everything you can, as faithful as you can do it, but guess what? There are circumstances out it God causes the growth. You do everything you can as faithfully as possible, but God reflects the growth. And guess what? The crop... The crop reflects upon the farmer, does it not? The building reflects upon the builder, does it not? He's saying plant wisely, build wisely, because it reflects upon our gospel. Re plant and build wisely. And, and it's, it's bigger than ourselves. You, you think about a team. If, one of, if, if a basketball team, they have five people, if one of them chooses to do their own thing when they run a play, if one of them chooses to make it about himself over the team... It destroys the whole team. 
destroys the whole team. They've got to all run the same play in order for it to be effective. If one of us is out doing our own thing, out for our own glory, living according to the world, it affects the whole team. And when one of the parts, when one of the parts of my body doesn't work, it affects the whole body. And what Paul is saying is, you no sin is an isolated sin. You do not sin in isolation. Every sin affects not only you, but it affects the whole church. We, when we habitually yield ourselves to the world, it affects the church. When we hold on to the philosophies of the world, it affects the church. We cannot build or plant whatever we want. We work together and we do it what is best for the gospel. We live lives based on what is best for the gospel. That's how we build. Otherwise, we're going to be divided. And Paul in 10 through 14 goes on to say that a, a very... A very big deal to Paul was what was the reward that was waiting before him. He says, I press on to win the prize, the upward call. I press on for that which is laid in front of me, for the crown, he says. And, and the dangerous thing about division is that it can start very subtly, so small, but it never stays small. Galatians 5 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul is saying, you, you get your eyes off the prize, you get your eyes on yourself, it'll start off small, it won't stay small. And if we don't live for the gospel, if we don't keep our eyes on the prize, if we don't do what we do because of the prize, we, the world will begin to refuse to listen to us if, we, if our lives match their lives. If our lives match their lives, they, we will forfeit our influence. And Paul says, guess what? You may get away with it here, but you're not going to get away with it with regards to God. In the end, your works will be evident. What we build upon, how we build our lives, what we plant upon, what we've planted, it'll become evident. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. For non-believers, they, they will stand before the, the great white throne judgment. For believers, it'll be the Bema seat. For rewards, it's based on rewards. What did you do with the life I gave you? How did you plant? How did you build? How did you farm? Were you faithful or not? Did you build according to the word or according to the world? And Paul says, each man's work, verse 13, or 12 rather. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones... Those would be costly things, very precious things that aren't burned. Or, he says, wood, hay, straw. You see, the, you see the difference there between those materials. Each man's work will become evident. For the day, that's the day he's referring to there in 2 Corinthians 5. Eat the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And one of the greatest motivating forces in Paul's life was the idea of the reward, the crown. That one day Jesus was coming back and it would be a time of reward. Paul prepared himself for that. He gave up himself for that. And one day Jesus is coming back and he will evaluate our work, but also the motive behind which we built. 
That's where he's talking about the foundation. Was the foundation to make much of you? Or was your foundation to make much of the gospel? That's the question. And, and, I, and I close with this story. I heard a story of a man who was a billionaire. And he had two sons. And he, he asked his sons, he said, Hey, I'm going to give you this amount of money, and I want for the next year, I want you to build a house. And based on how well you build that house, I'm coming back in a year, and I'm going to see how well you've built. And based upon how well you built, I'm going to divide up your inheritance. So a year goes by, one son diligently spends his year planning and building a house. Phenomenal house. The other son gets entangled with the things of this world, the cares of this world, gets distracted, time's running out, just does this little hut. Same resources. Father comes back, says, what, well done. Over here, he's like, what, what have you been doing? And my fear, that's what Paul, that is a picture of, of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. When Jesus Christ comes back, how will you have built? What will you have done with all that you were given? And I ask that same question. Which one are you today? Are you the son that has devoted his time to making much of the Lord? Or are we entangled in the things of the world? And we're going to wait till the end of our life to try to clean everything up. Because some of us won't get that time. Are, are, are you about the master? Or are you about yourself? And, and I challenging us and myself to build our lives on Christ alone. Build our lives on Christ alone. Build our lives around the principle of this word alone. And what Paul is saying, the overriding principle is this. It's gratitude towards what God has done for us at the cross. It's gratitude. We are to live lives that are overflow of the gratitude that we have for Christ. A person needs no extra incentive to be to, be, to have gratitude toward the person who saved them from drowning. My fear is Satan deceives us into think that we really weren't drowning in our sin. That we really weren't going to die in our sin. That if given enough time and effort, we could have saved ourselves. And that is absolutely not true. Live lives that, that, are, that are an overflow of the gratitude for the cross. And what Paul is saying is the cross. When you look at the cross... That should provide all the motivation we need to serve Him. If you're looking for extra motivation, you need not look further than the cross. The cross. And if we're living lives that are still fleshly, Paul would say you have failed to grasp, you have failed to truly grasp the cross. You've failed to fully grasp the gospel. And I pray that we would live lives that, that makes much of the salvation that God has given. That we live lives that no matter what, we want to make much of God and less of self. That none of us would have our work burned up and that we would get into heaven with the smell of smoke on us. By the skin of our chinny-chin-chin, as the little children's story says. That we would spend lives for the rest of eternity basking in the rewards of a life well done. That we will all hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That we would all hear that. And that's what Paul is shouting. A carnal Christian will forfeit those rewards and those blessings, but he will also forfeit his growth. Don't be carnal Christians. Be spirit-controlled, spirit-yielded Christians and let God deal with whatever happens.